A very warm welcome to a hybrid session. Tonight is both Purim Boot Camp and Torah Studies Purim Edition. Yes, it is the same idea, same theme, same, uh, same session. We've called it, it's, it's the Torah Studies class this week, it's not Wednesday. We're doing it tonight. The theme is Purim. We're also calling it Purim Boot Camp because it is all about getting us ready for the holidays. So I want to begin with a premise. And I wrote about this premise um, in the email. If you got the email that I sent out, I don't know, about an hour plus ago, um, I believe that we all have Purim wrong and we've been doing it wrong all these years. That's what I think. And to illustrate this, I don't to illustrate, to, to talk about this, I want to ask a very simple question. You ready? Simple question. Simple question is, why do we celebrate the holiday? This is open to everybody. Why do we celebrate the holiday Purim. What are we celebrating? Let's put it that way. What exactly are we celebrating? Jump in. Okay, hold on. I heard survival. Survival of the Jewish people. Good. What else? What are we? What are we celebrating? Ashley. The, first of all, welcome to Ashley, who's here tonight for the class. Welcome, welcome. It's great to have you here. The question on the table is: What are we celebrating with the holiday of Purim? Survival, Queen what Esther, else? Queen Esther's courage. Queen Esther's courage, good. What else? Freedom. Freedom. The hidden actions of Hashem. Hidden actions of Hashem, good, good, good. What else? What are we celebrating? What are we celebrating? Embracing the Torah. Okay, ooh. Ah, ah, David is sneaky. David is sneaky. Good. Good. Excellent, David. All right, we're going to get to that theme. We're going to get to that theme soon. I would say that most of us think about Purim in the context of other holidays. And what is the context of other holidays? It's they try to kill us. We won. Let's eat. Yeah, you heard that refrain before? Yeah, they try to kill us. We won. Let's eat. And it seems to be that's like all the holidays, starting from Passover. Passover is they try to kill us. We won. Let's eat matzah. Who came up with that? Who's like, let's eat matzah, that's going to be great. I, like, who, which, we, let me speak to that person and be like, could have found like a thousand better things. Then we have Hanukkah. Hanukkah also. They try to kill us, right? We won. Let's eat. Oh, we're doing better now. Hanukkah, we got latkes. We got don't, jelly donuts. Not a bad gig. Not a bad gig. Then Purim comes around and you would think it's the same thing. They try to kill us. Haman try to kill us. We won. Let's eat. We have hamantashen. Right, we have babka, black and white cookies. Okay, wait, that's not part of the tradition. We have hamantashen, and uh, yeah, we have a festive meal, and we give food, gifts of food to people. So we're celebrating with food. It seems like that's the theme. But here's my question. If that's the theme, why do we need so many holidays that share the same theme? Do we need, how many holidays do we need to talk about Jewish survival? Are you with me on this? Like, how, we survived um, ancient Egypt holiday. We survived the challenges. Matt, do you mind getting, uh, it seems like someone's there. Thank you. Um, we survived the challenges of ancient Greece. Holiday. We survived the challenges of ancient Persia. Holiday. So why do we stop creating holidays? If it's all about survival, why do we stop creating holidays? In other words, what is this holiday really about? Is it just about survival? Is it just about happiness that there was a, a plot by Haman that was thwarted? Hey, Linda, welcome. Is it just about, don't, don't forget, don't forget that table. Oh, no, all right, all right, all right. 
Okay, so is it just about survival? Is it just about the fact that Haman tried to kill us and instead of us being killed, God forbid, he was killed? And is that, is that, is that the extent of it? Um, tonight we're going to explore a completely different theme of the holiday. A theme that will make so much sense once we develop the theme. A theme that will change the way you look at and experience the holiday, and a theme that very well may change the way you live your life. So that is, that is the premise of tonight's class. So here's how we begin. The class begins by looking at what happened at Mount Sinai 3333 years ago. What happened at Sinai was the moment, the experience of revelation when God gave us the Torah. God spoke to us the Ten Commandments. We received the Torah. It is quite a remarkable story. We're going to go around and do some readings about this story and then jump into, um, and then jump into our Purim connection momentarily. I'm going to share my screen and uh, for all those online so you can check it out. Um, Again, on the table, the, the main question tonight is, what is Purim really about? But to really understand this, let's go back to the events of 3,333 years ago. Ed, if you don't mind, cracking open the booklet over there, and please read page 173. This is text number one. All right, text number one. Please take it away. It came to pass on the third day when it was, the mor when it was morning, that there were thunderclaps and lightning flashes, and a thick cloud was upon the mountain, and the sound of a very powerful blast of a shofar, and the entire nation that was in the camp shuddered. Moses brought the people out toward God from the camp, and they stood at the bottom of the mountain, and the entire Mount Sinai smoked because God had descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of the kiln, and the entire mountain quaked violently. Continue, verse 19, next page. The sound of the shofar grew increasingly stronger. Moses would speak and God would answer him with a voice. God descended upon Mount Sinai to the peak of the mountain and God summoned Moses to the peak of the mountain and Moses ascended. Okay, great. So we have here a description of the, of the incredible experience of Sinai. So we have here thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and a loud shofar blast and and the, the Mount Sinai is smoking, and the entire mountain, Mount Sinai smoked. It's like the original Smoky Mountain. It's like it's, the mountain is smoking like the smoke of a kiln. The entire mountain is quaking violently. It's like an earthquake. There's, there's sounds, there's lights, there's flashes, there's thunder, there's noise, there's, there's movement. It's, it's, a, it's a complete um, multi-sensory experience is the experience right before divine revelation at Sinai. In other words, it wasn't just God said, hey, I'm the Lord your God, don't have any other gods, and, you know, et cetera, Ten Commandments. The whole experience was like a very much a multimedia, multi-sensory experience. Fantastic. There's one verse here that we need to explore a little bit deeper. And that verse, which Ed just read, is verse number 17. If you look at the end of verse 17, so it says they, they stood, the people stood at the bottom of the mountain, right? Look, at, look back at that. Um, it's on page 173, right? It says that the people stood at the bottom of the mountain. In the original Hebrew, the Hebrew says, Pasuk uh, Zion, verse 17, They stood, which could mean at the bottom of the mountain, or 
it could mean that they stood beneath the mountain. Beneath the mountain. This leads to an incredibly daring interpretation of our sages that defies rationale. But we're going to explain it tonight. It's an unbelievable explanation that just boggles the mind. That is what we're going to encounter right now. The Talmud says the following. Ashley, up to reading. Text number two. Text number two. This is from the Talmud. Take it away, please. And they stood at the bottom of the mountain. Rabbi Abdini Bar Kama Bar Kasa said, the Jewish people actually stood beneath the mountain. And the verse teaches that the Holy One, blessed be He, overturned the mountain above the Jews like a barrel. He said to them, if you accept the Torah, excellent, excellent, and if not, there will be your burial. Rabbi Ahav Bar Yaakov said, from here there is a substantial caveat to the obligation to fulfill the, t- the Torah. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what we have here is a daring Talmudic statement, one that we've, we've shared in classes previously. Basically, the Talmud says that the meaning of the verse that we just read, that the people stood at the bottom of the mountain, doesn't mean they stood at the foot of the mountain. It means they stood underneath the mountain. The mountain was lifted up over their heads. And God says to them, if you, re- if you accept the Torah, great. If not, kablooey, drop. That was hitting the button for the drop. I don't think God has to hit a button for the drop. Drop. You with me on this? That's how the Talmud explains, or specifically, Rav Avdimi, Barcham Abrachasa, that's how he explains the meaning of They stood at the bottom of the mountain means they stood literally at the bottom of the mountain because the mountain was above them. And God says, either accept the Torah or else you're finished. Okay, so what they say? Well, what do you think they said? <laughs> if that's the choice, <laughs> uh, I think we'll take it. I think we'll take it. Mikan concludes the Talmud. This becomes a great caveat. What's a caveat? Not caviar. That's the food. What's caveat? What's a caveat? Exception. It's an exception, or it's it's. Yeah, it's kind of like. It's kind of like um, this becomes a something that undermines the 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 power of the acceptance of the Jewish people of Torah. It really undermines Yiddishkeit, Judaism. How so? How so? Think about it. It sounds like coercion. Yeah, that's what I I was going to get into. Consent, right? I was just going to talk about consent now, right? If, if, if someone is forced into something, right, if there's no consent, right, I, I mean, can't they say, I never meant it? Can't they rightfully say, like, I didn't, you forced me, I, did, I didn't say yes, you forced me. Isn't that, isn't that accurate? Right, so if God would have at any point in time a claim against the Jewish people, how come you're not keeping the law? You said you would. What could the Jewish people say back? Uh, when we said yes, it was because there was a mountain over our heads. We never really said yes. There wasn't really consent. The consent was out of, out of uh, self-preservation. Right? In fact, there is halachic, there's a halachic, a, a Jewish legal um, notion of caveat, which is very important. And let's, let's actually explore that right now. This is text number three. Sandrine, if you don't mind reading text three, this is going to be on page... 175. We're about to get into a Rashbam that talks about a legal scenario where a person preemptively declares 
that um, what they're about to agree to is not with full acceptance, but is actually out of coercion, and therefore what the, the agreement has no legal binding. You with me on this? If a person makes it known that they're about to agree to something, but it's not really an agreement, but they're rather being forced, then that agreement is null and void. It's, it's um, preemptively null and void. All right, let's read this inside. Here's the scenario. The following is the law in a situation where a person is being coerced to give something away and is being compelled to write a contract of sale or gifting in front of witnesses. The person must notify two of the witnesses prior and declare. Know that the sale or gifting of his field that appears to be something I wish to give away to so-and-so is really against my will. I am being forced to do this, and there is no substance to the contract I will be drawing. Today or tomorrow, I will request that you testify in court and disqualify that contract, stating that I made this statement to you before the contract was drawn up. So somebody who knows, isn't that powerful? Right, this is a clear Rashbam. Someone knows that they are being forced to relinquish their property. It, the, the example here is field. Relinquish their real estate. Either by signing a, signing a contract that says that they're gifting it or selling it to another party, but they don't want to, but they're being coerced to. So what's, what, what's, what's their play? If they're being forced to, what's their play? They should go to another two witnesses and tell the two witnesses, you should know, I'm about to drop a contract, but I'm being forced to. So I'm letting you know before that contract, I'm letting you guys know that it's forced, it's not willing. It's coercion. It's not, it's not Baratzin, it's not, it's not willingly. And therefore, when they present that document, that other document of court that says, well, he sold it or he gave it away, you guys come and testify that I told you beforehand that the whole thing is null and void. Does that make sense? That's what we call a caveat. Caveat means that preemptively saying, you know, it's like an asterisk. It's like, sure, he sold it or he gave it, but hey -oh, that wasn't actually the intention. There was coercion there. So the Talmud is saying, yes, makes sense? Yeah, fairly straightforward. So the Talmud is saying, There's a caveat to the whole experience at Sinai. Because although we said yes, there was a mountain over our heads. So how yes was the yes? Were you going to say something? No. Makes sense? Yeah? Okay. So now the question is, great, so the whole fountain... I, I just have a cool question, but the but the the Jews did not make that caveat. Yeah, well, they uh, maybe they didn't have time, or there were no other witnesses because you know the mountain was over their head. But the point is, the mountain was still over their head. Um, their acceptance wasn't a real acceptance. When they say, when God says, "All right, accept the Torah, or else, boom, I'm dropping it," and they said, "Okay, we'll take the Torah." So, what what kind? The point is, this is now a midar rabbal araisa. This is now, this is now a, 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 there's a huge caveat to the obligation to fulfill. Any person could say at any point in time, you know what? I didn't really mean it. I didn't really say yes. So you know what? I'm not doing it. Ah, you said yes? You agreed to it? Not really. I didn't really agree to it. I was forced into it. What kind of consent is that? You can back out on consent if it's not consent. Right? That's the whole point here. So the good news is that although this lasted for about a thousand years, a thousand years later, the story of Purim fixed it up. What do I mean? In the story of Purim, the Talmud says, the same Talmud that says there was a massive caveat also says that a thousand years later, there finally was 
Finally, was consent. Text number four. Let's read text number four inside. Linda, if you're up to it, please read text number four. Let me pull this up on the screen. Give me a moment. All right. The, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Text number four is not the Talmud. It's from the book of Esther, which the, Tal the Talmudic text is based. That's fine. Let's read this. This is toward the end of the Megillah. You should know the Megillah has, what is it, 10 chapters or 11, 10 or 11 chapters. I think it's 10. This is chapter 9. So it's right to the end. It's toward the end uh, of the story of Esther. Take it away, please. Son of Hamatata, yeah. the Ag Agagite, yeah. the adversary of all the Jews, had devised to destroy the Jews, and he cast the pool, that is the lot, to terrify them and destroy them. And when she, Esther, came before the king, he, Ahasuerus, commanded through letters that his evil device that he had devised against the Jews return upon his own head and to destroy him and his sons on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, and what they saw concerning this matter, and what happened to them, the Jews upheld and took upon themselves, and upon their seed, and upon all those who joined them, that it is not to be revoked, to make these two days according to their script, and according to their appointed time every year. You know, this translation is a little bit literal, and it, you kind of read it and you're like, what's yeah. trying? To, what's exactly trying to say? You notice that? I mean, it's like a little bit hard to follow the exact narrative. I, I mean, it, there's a lot of words. It's, there's the idea that there was danger, Haman, danger, poor, lot, um, terror, terror, destruction, things flipped around. He was hanged on the he was uh, uh, destroyed on the gallows. The Jews were saved. We call it Purim, named after the poor, the lot. Um, and then verse 27 begins, and that's where I want to focus on. The Jews upheld and took upon themselves and upon their seed and upon those who joined them uh, that it is not to be revoked. In other words, to keep this holiday. So they upheld and took upon themselves. So those words in Hebrew are kimu v'kiblu hayudim. Kimu, kimu v'kiblu hayudim. The Jews, the Yehudim, the Jews, kimu v'kiblu. They upheld and took upon themselves. What? Simply to observe the holiday of Purim every year. It's like that we're observing the holiday. That's what they committed themselves to. But the Talmud says something else. The Talmud says that those words, the Jews upheld and took upon themselves, that's referring to them up upholding and finally agreeing to what they initially said yes to a thousand years earlier with the caveat. Does that make sense? What they had said a thousand years earlier, that they wanted Torah at Mount Sinai when they were under the mountain and under duress, they finally, a thousand years later, they upheld and took upon themselves. That phrase, 27, Kimu ve'kibla Yehudim, the Jews upheld and took upon themselves, is understood in the Talmudic, uh, Talmudic analysis to refer to finally accepting Torah after all these centuries. Take a look. Don't trust me. Let's read it in the Talmud itself. Matt, please read text number five, where the Talmud concludes its narrative. Rabbi said, even though they were coerced to accept the Torah at Sinai, they again accepted it willingly in the time of Ahasuerus. And as the verse states, the Jews upheld and took upon themselves, meaning they upheld what they had already accepted upon themselves at Sinai. So what they had already accepted upon themselves at Sinai, they finally, um, they finally upheld. They confirmed. You want to use the word confirmation? Kimu, they confirmed. They finally accepted it and embraced it willingly. So what they had accepted 
in a coerced fashion at Sinai, they accepted willingly during the times of Purim. Okay? That's the story. So here's the narrative arc. Let me just repeat the arc, and then I have a bunch of questions that I'm sure you also might have. So we started off this class by talking about what the theme of Purim is, and it seems to be standard case of they try to kill us, we won, let's eat, to which I asked the question, come on, another one? We need another holiday because it happened in a different time, different era, different place. What the background is different. Oh, here, look, take a look. Now we have Persia in the background. It's not Egypt. It's not, you know, Greece. It's Persia. Like, why is that? Why is that a new holiday? So that was that was one question. Um, and then we got into the Talmudic details about the giving of the Torah at Sinai, where the Talmud says that God lifted up the mountain like a barrel, actually like an upside down barrel. Imagine if this is a barrel and it's upside down, right? So imagine, I'm not going to, I have water in here. That would be reckless, right? So it's upside down barrel on top of the Jewish people. And God says, either accept it or boom, or you're done. And the Talmud says, this becomes a great caveat. This becomes a great, uh, you know, asterisk, if you will, for the acceptance of Torah at Sinai. Until the Talmud says, a thousand years later, by Purim, they finally willingly accepted Torah, accepted, accepted Yiddishkeit, Judaism, upon themselves. That's where we're up to? Yes? Yes? Yes, 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 yes. Questions. I have questions. Do you have questions? Okay, question number one. God is telling the Jewish people, either accept the Torah or I'm going to drop this on your head. Yeah, first of all, that doesn't sound so nice. Second of all, that's not my question. That's just a comment. It's an observation. Second of all, in the timeline of the days preceding Mount Sinai, God had already asked the Jewish people if they wanted to receive the Torah. And you know what the Jews said? Nase v'nishma. We're ready to go. Nase v'nishma. We're ready to do it. You just tell us what to do. Nase v'nishma. We'll do. You just tell us what to do. They said yes before even knowing what it says in the book. That happened days earlier. Like three or four days prior, the Jewish people had already said yes. They had already consented. Free will consent. A few days later, right before Revelation at Sinai, God lifts a mountain over their heads and says, accept it or die. What? Why the strong arm tactics? Why are they needed if they already said yes? You with me on this? The whole story doesn't make sense. If they had never said yes before and it's a question, then maybe you got to, yeah, I, I'm still not advocating still not uh, happy about that, that methodology, but maybe you can understand why God felt, you know, he can't, he can't risk a no. So he picks up the mountain. But they had already said yes. So why is he asking again? What's going on? Why the threat? Why the mountain? You with me on this? It's not my question. It's Tosfot's question. Tosfot, the commentary on the Talmud asked this question. I'll show it to you inside. Take a look. Text number six. Text number six. Tosfot. Right? He overturned the mountain above the Jews like a barrel. Tosfot asks, Tosfot is a collection of commentaries from the grandsons of Rashi. Grandsons of Rashi were great scholars. They wrote a commentary called Tosfot. All right, here's what, here, here's what Tosfot says. Why would this be necessary? Why the need for the threats? If the Jews already accepted the Torah by saying, Nasev Vinishma, we will do and we will obey. Why the need to hold the mountain over their heads? That's question number one. Question number two. What happened at Purim? thousand years later, again, just to get the timeline here, the story of Revelation at Sinai happens 3,333 years ago. That's when we got the Torah at Sinai. The story of Purim happened 2,300 years ago. So 3,300 years ago to 2,300 years ago is how many years? thousand years. Yes? thousand years later is the story of Purim. So for a thousand years, 
we kind of said yes to Torah. I mean, we said yes before, but when God lifted the mountain, we said yes, but that was a bit of a forced situation. Okay, a little coercion there. Not really consensual. Okay, so there's a caveat. Then, a thousand years later, story of Purim, we finally accepted the Torah. How do we accept the Torah? What happened? What happened in times of Purim that we accepted the Torah? Is it because um, God saved us from the threat? And so we're like, yes, we really love God. Right? And instead of God being the bad guy with the, with the guy with the mountain over our heads, now God's the good guy because he took out Haman and he saved our lives. So like, God, you know, fist bump, we love you, God, we're in. Is that what happened? Is that what happened? There were many times the Jews were saved. Many times. There were many nations in between Sinai, over those thousand years, there were many times that Jewish people were at risk on some level. There were nations that, that were defeated by Moses, nations defeated by, uh, by Joshua, and, and other nations that tried to get in the way. I'm talking about the, um, uh, the Canaanites and the, um, who else did we have? The Amorites, the Midianites. There were many nations that tried to step in the way of the Jewish people, and the Jewish people were, were victorious and, and were saved from them. So if it's all about feeling God's blessing, feeling God's goodness, and appreciating that and responding to that by saying, God, we're finally in. We weren't sure, but now we're in because you're hooking us up, so now we're in on our side. We're saying yes, if that's the case. Why, why, why wait till a thousand years later for that to, to finally concretize? Why didn't it happen way earlier in other situations of salvation? So my question is, yeah. Didn't God save them with, with, from the Egyptians? Wasn't that enough? Yeah, but th okay, but that happened before Sinai. We're saying in between Sinai, right? After Sinai where there's the caveat because God played Mr. Not-So-Nice not Guy, we think that Purim was a time where God was nice to us, so that's why we said yes, finally, wholeheartedly. But there were other times in between Sinai and Purim, those thousand years, where things happened nice to us, where we could have said to God, you know what, all right, we're in, no more caveats, you can drop the asterisk, that's it, you know, vote us into the Hall of Fame. No, I'm kidding. Like, let us in and that's it, we're good, that's, yeah. Anyway, so that's a uh, little baseball joke. So that's the question. We have two questions. We have a story about a barrel, and a caveat, and about Purim, and acceptance. And question number one is, why did God have to play, uh, have to, you know, um, uh, why did God have to lift the barrel in the first place if we already said yes? And number two, what happened in times of Purim specifically that we finally wholeheartedly said yes, what does that even mean? So to understand this, we are going to present the barrel in a completely different way. And I, I've shared this in other classes. In fact, I think we did this recently in a Kabbalah coffee class. Not that long ago, maybe a few months ago, two months ago. Not, not that long ago. There is another way of understanding the barrel story that completely turns everything upside down. You, when you read the Talmud, you think that it's such a scary situation. God held a mountain over their heads and says, you better accept the Torah or else, boom. That's like, oh my gosh. It's like, threatening. It's like threats and violence and it's, that sounds horrible. But there's another way to understand this. Completely different way of understanding this. And that is that what God said to the Jewish people, God didn't actually say, have to say anything to the Jewish people. What, what was going on was that imagine. Let's, let's just put everything in context. Imagine the Jewish people. Imagine you and I are there at that point in time. So we were slaves in Egypt and our parents were slaves, our grandparents were slaves, we were born into slavery. 
That's all we've known. And then God sends Moses and ten plagues and the Exodus. And then we encounter the sea and the chasing Egyptians, the advancing Egyptians, and then God splits the sea. And we have incredible salvation, incredible miracles. Unbelievable. And if you're a slave, if you and I are slaves, to have freedom, to have a God, to have a force, to have a deity that cares so much about, so much about us that he's going to save our lives with, amid such miracles and fanfare, what's the natural response when someone does so much for you? What's your natural response? Huh? Thank you. Guilty. That's very Jewish. That's very, it's a very Jewish response. Aye, <laughs> what have I done wrong? No, the, the, let, let me phrase it a little bit differently. If somebody showers you with such love, right? <laughs> but what's the natural response? The natural response is that you love being loved. Who doesn't love being loved? It's like someone loves you so much, you love the fact that you're being loved. The problem with loving being loved is that you don't know if you love being loved or if you love them. Are you with me on that? Let's try that again. Right? When somebody shows you all the love, right? All the love. And now you're the recipient of, like, you're being whisked away. It's like the Tinder swindler. It's like you're being whisked away in, like, airplanes and... Sorry about that. You're being whisked away in, in airplanes... Is my, mic, is my mic on? You're being whisked away in airplanes and in helicopters and the restaurants. And, and it's, uh, it's a complicated story. Anyway, but this one is like this. So, so yeah, and, and, and you're being lavishly just wine and dined and gifts and clothes and jewelry and whatever you want this person is giving you. How do you not fall in love with that? But the question, <laughs> Linda's so skeptical. You're like, yeah, something's wrong over there. No, no, but. I mean, it was so obvious to me. That All right, one second. Of, you know, Especially because they called it the swindler. All right. But anyway, no, back to the. I watched the documentary. I was like, these girls are dumb. All right, wait, we're not judging anybody. Listen, <laughs> slow down. All right, it's fine. All right, but I want to bring it back. The point is like this the point is that. If somebody shows you such unmitigated love, the natural response is loving them back. And then the question is, if you really love the sorry, the question is then, do you really love them? Or do you love the fact that they love you? In other words, are you loving the gifts? Are you loving the love? Are you loving them? This is what happened at Sinai. This is the barrel. This is how the author explains it. And that's why I wanted to use the example of the cup, upside down cup. Think of an upside down cup. I wish I could turn it over without spilling. But you have a cup and you turn it upside down and then you put, put it on top of something. What happens? What happens? What's that called? Take a cup, put it upside down on top of something. Something's inside of it now. What do you call that? What's the state of that thing? Captivity. Captivity. It's trapped. It can't move. It's stuck. It's captive. This is the, the, the idea of the love that God showed us at Sinai. God, or prior to Sinai and at Sinai, the whole experience was one of such profound love that we were trapped in the love. Now that's, right, we, should all, we, we should all have it so difficult, right? It's not a bad thing, but it's still a trap. Why is it a trap? In the sense that I don't know if I actually, I don't know if I actually love them. Maybe I just love the love. Maybe I'm just being held captive almost 
by the by, by by the by the bonds of love that that person is showering upon me. Let's take a look at text number seven. This is how all of all of what I told you is how the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, explains the Talmudic passage of the mountain over their heads. No, God didn't literally lift the mountain and hold it over their heads. That's not what that's not what the Talmud means. That there was literally Mount Sinai hovering over their heads. It's not what it means. It means that God showered them with such love. Through the Exodus, the ten plagues, the splitting of the sea, the experience that was about to happen at Sinai, there was so much love in the air that the Jews couldn't have said no. It's like, okay, one more example before we read the text. You ever see those proposals at the baseball game or football game on the Jumbotron? You ever see those? You ever see that little move going on? It's like, oh, in front of 70,000 people. Who could say no? Right? Now, but now the question is, when you said yes, was it a real yes? Too schmaltzy. <laughs> I agree with you, right. But listen, listen. <laughs> and, and let's say she says no, and he's like, well, hold on. I, there's a lot of people. Let's take a vote, right? <laughs> what? Let's take a vote. Who says yes? Right? It's like, um, right. anyway, fine. Okay, so many things to say. Back, back to our story. When, when a person proposes on the jumbotron and there's like oh and everyone's cheering and then she says yes how do you know she really meant it maybe she was caught up in the moment maybe there's a pressure of the moment even positive pressure not necessarily negative pressure there's two types of pressure there's positive pressure sorry there's negative pressure which is pressure that's a literal mountain over your head neg let me get this straight there's negative pressure which is that literal mountain over your head Accept or die. I mean, that's like, terrible. That's not what God did. There's positive pressure, which is, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Do you love me? Yes. But how do you know? How do you know? How do you know? You get, you're getting all these gifts, right? Yeah, you're getting all these gifts, hotels, restaurants. All right, here we go. I'm sharing my screen. Let's read this inside. This is in the language of the Alta Rebbe. Text 7 page 178. This is why God overturned the mountain above them like a barrel, as in the verses, right hand embraces me, it implies a degree of expression of God's supernal love for the Jewish people. Love, not hate, not anger, not mountains, not danger, love. This love embraces the collective Jewish people as when one hugs another person, surrounding them like the barrel upside down, like the cup upside down, surrounding them from all sides, even the back, so that they cannot move away and are compelled to stand there facing the lover. Oh, look at this. Look at this. I love this language. When you hug, right, you're expressing love. What else are you doing? You're taking them captive. Think about it, right? When you hug, you're also holding the other person. Yeah, that's what he says. That's what he says. Not a neg it's not a negative situation, but it is what it is. Still can't move. <laughs> it's not negative, but you can't move, right? Let's continue. In other words, because of God's supernal love, a love awakened within the soul, because of God's love, a love awakened within the souls of the Jewish people, uplifting them to the point where they would declare, we will do and we will obey. Of course they said yes, because they were being loved on so much revealing this light of love from above, such as it says, I loved you, said God, awakens a corresponding love from below. In other words, when God awakens his love, well, we can't help but love reciprocally uh, to above. This is the elevation of the Jewish collective, i.e. the collective Jewish spirit, and the expiration of their souls toward him. It's using some mystical language here. The idea is it's like a yearning of the soul to God because of God's showering of love to us. This is the meaning, he says, of overturning of the mountain 
It suggests the supernal love, not a, not a mountain, not a real mountain. God didn't actually lift the mountain. It's a love, which is referred to as a mountain. Love is euphemistically referred to as a mountain. Why mountains are big and love is big. It is likened to a barrel, which suggests something that surrounds and overwhelms all worlds, a light so intense that it awakens a love within them. Basically, it's like a hug, it's love, it's overwhelming, etc. But the bottom line is, the end of the story is still the same. It wasn't fully consensual. How do you know it was consent? When we said yes, was it because we really loved God or we loved what God was, lo how God was loving us? You with me on that? Yeah, makes sense. So now there's a caveat. How do we know? How do we know that we really love God? In other words, let's talk about relationships. Yeah, when the guy is flying you across the world, when you're going to Paris for the evening, to the Eiffel Tower and a restaurant and a nice stroll, and then the next day you're going to Madrid. Huh? Who can, Who can resist that? <laughs> exactly. Who can resist? Yeah. And then you're going to Madrid, and then you're going to Barcelona. Wait, that's all Spain. And then you're going to Cape Town, and then you're going to uh, wherever. Yeah? Being flown around and wine and dined and international cuisine, and it's unbelievable, and you're finding all the greatest kosher restaurants. Yeah, it's unbelievable. You're going here, you're going there. It's amazing. And... and do you love me? Yes, of course I love you. You want to marry me? Yes. Great. Great. What happens when the music stops? What happens when the gifts stop? What, happen when, what happens when the travel stops? What happens when life is normal and no longer is all of this love mountain being showered upon you? What happens when you're no longer feeling the hug? Are you still in or are you out? That's the question. This is the question. What happens when you don't feel the love? What, happen, what happens when the hug is let go of? Are you in? What do you, what do you choose? Not when the other one shows you, did you say yes? But what do you choose? Forget about their choice. They chose you. We already know that. They chose you. And they chose you. Oh, somebody chose me. I'm in. Forget them. What happens when you no longer feel that choice? What happens when it's just you alone with your thoughts? What happens when you don't feel their embrace? What happens when you're not receiving their gifts? What happens when their love is not overt and overwhelming? What happens on a normal every day? Are you in or are you out? Where are you? Not where are they. Where are you? For a thousand years, we didn't know. For a thousand years. Until Purim. Why Purim? What happened in Purim? Think about it. What happened in Purim? The Jews were in existential danger like they never faced. Like never. I mean, to, for, since the times of, of slavery in, in Egypt. Since then, since Egypt, in other words, post-Sinai, they had never been in such danger. The, the threat of Purim was... Men, women, children, elderly, no matter what gender, no matter what age... No matter who you are, if you were Jewish, you were slated, God forbid, for absolute extermination. That was Haman. And Haman had, with the seal of the king, the power to do that, to wipe out the Jewish people. This was unprecedented, never before, never after. Because afterwards, Jews, were, Jews diversified their, uh, their, their, their living quarters, so to speak, or where they, where, they, where they found themselves. In the story of Purim, all Jews lived under one empire. One empire. Which means that if Haman got his way, that would have been 
it. And they were targeted specifically because they were Jewish. You ask the Jew, living under the threat of Haman's decree, and they all knew about this decree. They had seen copies. They knew about the decree. A Jew living under that time, you ask them, how much does God love you? How does that love feel? You feeling hugged right now? How's the hug going? No hug. No love. What love? God's selling us out. Love? You call this love? God abandoned us. Where's God? How come he's not stepping in? Where's God? For a full year, a full year, from the time the decree was signed until the Purim miracle was a full year. A full year living under the threat of extermination. In other words, a full year living under a reality where you don't feel God's love. And yet, not one Jew backed out of the engagement. Not one, or relationship. Not one Jew said, I'm out, see you later. I'm done. This is ridiculous. <laughs> what kind of relationship is this? Not one Jew did that. For a full year, you know what every single Jew declared? Without exception? I'm in this relationship. I'm in it, not because I feel the love, not because it feels great, not because it's good for me, not because of, of the wonderful gifts. I feel nothing. There's no gifts, no love, no hug, nothing. But I'm in. I'm in. I'm dedicated to it. This is what I choose. When do you know that it's you who chooses? When you don't see the lights. When you, when you don't see the glory. When you don't feel the love. When, it's not, when there are no gifts from the other and you still choose, that's when you know it's real. So a thousand years it took until Judaism was confirmed as being legit or until we confirmed that we are legit in, in, in this thing called Judaism for a thousand years. At Sinai we said yes, but what kind of yes was that? God was giving us, it's like, it's like the yes in front of the jumbotron. Of course he said yes. Huh? Yeah, it's like he obligated us with love. He, he, he you know, it's like he killed, you know, killed us with love almost. It's... <laughs> Right? It's like, I killed us, but like, he, he coerced us with love. But a thousand years later came the story of Purim. And the story of Purim, what happened? What happened was that there was nothing. Nothing from that side, nothing from God's side. No love, no, no um, I mean, before the miracle, obviously. Right? No love, no gifts, no hug, garnished, nothing. Only what we had was threats and danger and persecution, and decrees, and hamans, and just feeling completely abandoned and sold out. And in that time, for a full year, we said, we're in. We're not going anywhere. Not one Jew left. Take a look. Take a look at some texts. Um, let's read. Let's read, let's read. Text 9b. Okay, I'm going to do a few texts, and then we have a, an unbelievable finish here. All right, so stay, stay tuned here. Text 9b, again the Alter Rebbe. This then is the meaning of our sage's statement that from here there is a substantial caveat to the obligation to fulfill the Torah. In other words, the feeling that stirred in their hearts at Sinai to accept the Torah with such sacrifice and surrender that they declare we will do and we will obey was not entirely a result of their own choice and desire. Rather, it was an account of the revelation of God's love from on high that inspired their reciprocal love toward Him. Right? They only said yes because God was doing so much for them, because God was loving on them. Right? Take a look at text number 10. Contrast that with a thousand years later, times of Purim under the threat of 
under, under, the, under the threat of, of Haman's decree. We know that had they apostatized, God forbid, in other words, relinquished their Judaism, nothing would have happened to them, for the decree only applied to Jews. If they were no longer Jews, no decree anymore. Nevertheless, not one of them even entertained an outside thought, God forbid, in other words, a thought of leaving the fold, and instead sacrificed their lives for God. By living Jewish, every single day they were living with self-sacrifice, by not saying, by not turning in their Jew card, by not saying, you know what? I'm out, Haman, let's hug it out, I'm with you, I don't know about these Jews, I'm no longer part of them, I'm just Persian. Not one Jew did that, not one Jew sold themselves out, that means that they lived for a full year with intense sacrifice, Mesirat Nefesh, give, prepare, uh, uh, being prepared to give up their lives for God. This is what it means that they said yes. After a thousand years, they finally said yes. Not God forced them with love to say yes. There was no love. There was no love. What kind of love? For a full year, they said yes of their own volition. Now, obviously, the end of the story is salvation. But that's not what proved that they were really into it. The fact that, they, the fact that it all worked out well is, is great, and thank God we're still here. Right? That's, that's good for us. But what is Purim? What's the holiday of Purim? Purim is a celebration, not if they try to kill us, we survived, let's eat. Purim is a celebration of that full year of living with dedication to God despite not getting any feedback from that side. It's being committed to a relationship where you're not getting anything back. You with me on this? That's profoundly difficult. You have to really, really love that other if you're not getting anything from them, if you're, not, if you're only getting, right, if you're not getting any feedback, not, no positive feedback, that you're still in it, you're still committed to it, you're not gonna tap out and say, I'm done, this is finished. Like, I'm not getting anything out of the relationship. This is the depth of the relationship, the depth of the Jews' relationship to Torah, mitzvot, and God, and that's what Purim celebrates. Now the question is, okay, let me pause here because I have one more piece that I think is going to blow your minds. But first, questions on the concept. Not related questions, nothing tangential right now, but any Havana, any understanding questions right now on the point, or it makes sense. Yes? Is it possible that, I mean, that the Jews... Knew they were going to die, and they still said, "Well, in the remaining days that we have, we're going to maintain our relationship with Hashem, even I, if later we die." I like that. I mean, I think so. I think that's the implication of of text, whatever it was, um, text ten. That's what I think. I mean, maybe in, in different words, but I like the way that you phrased it. In other words, they were saying, "Look, we have one year left. We have one 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 year to live." Um, and we're not going to trade in our Jew card. We're not going to just give up and, 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 and save ourselves. We're going to remain dedicated and devoted. Dedicated and devoted to the end. Because we're, we're in. We're choosing it not because it's good for us. It's not good for us. We're still choosing it. We're choosing it because this is life. This is who we are. It's, like, it's almost like it was so part of them they couldn't not choose it. That's when you know it's deep, when you can't not choose it. Yeah. Okay. So... Again, to recap, because then I have, we have one more. Yeah, um, hold on one second. Yeah. You, you, you said the word Havana. I haven't heard that word before. Oh, Havana. Cuba. No, I'm kidding. That's no, Havana. Havana means understanding. Like Bina, Hav- Havana means like understanding. So I said a Havana question, a question on understanding, as opposed to like, uh, how do we compare this to something else? Yes, Steve. Hey, so how is the externality of God's unconditional, overwhelming love, the mountain? 
any different than the externality of Heyman's decree. If, uh. by, if we accept that nothing is by happenstance and you are in the circumstances that are, you know, your pathway is, is I don't want to say ordained, but it's laid out for you, you're not there by chance, then this quote-unquote chance poor lottery circumstance of Heyman's decree is not by chance. Then right. is that not also an externality that, that also abrogates this contract? Well, I mean, you could say something a little bit different, which is true, and it is said somewhere else that, you know, there's the coercion out of there's there's love coercion and and the opposite coercion. In other words, you could either be forced by love or forced by threats, and not threats. There's nothing that brings out the Jew like a little anti-Semitism. Right, little that's pressure. that's exactly. little pressure, right? right? right. So it, one could argue that at Sinai they were pressured with positive pressure to say yes, and at at, at times of Purim they had a little anti-Semitism and nothing nothing rallies the Jewish soul like a little. Anti- you're right, you're right, and that's why the ultimate the ultimate test of whether we're in is in the United States of America 2022, where there's no one giving us candy if we do a mitzvah, and there's no one trying to kill us if we thank God if we do it. Thank God no one's trying to kill us to do a mitzvah. But you could do whatever you want, and it's up to you now. What do you choose? Saturday morning, where are you, right? What's the choice? No one's pressuring you either way. No one's saying, oh, you're going to get challenged. Oh, well, we do say that. No one's going to say um, whatever. No one's going to be like, uh, even in spite of the challenge. In spite of the challenge, exactly. Ah, it's too cold. It's too spicy. Right, so it's not. It's fine. It's beautiful. Uh, but n- not positive or negative pressure, correct. But but that's already a deeper understanding. Let's keep let's keep it to this idea. You're, so my, my answer to you is you're right. Nonetheless, let's let's keep it to this to this one context. So to recap, we have Sinai. The experience at Sinai was what I would what we would call love, overwhelming love, um, love that that almost forced us as a people to say yes to God. God proposes, do you want to you know. Would you want my Torah? Are we going to, you know, be connected? And we said yes, but how would we not say yes after all the miracles and all the love and all the restaurants and all the mana and all the, all the, all the blessings? Of course we said yes. So it took a thousand years to get a really dark time. And, and in that time, the question is now, so now that suddenly you don't have all the benefits, you don't have all the, now you don't have all the, all the blessings, all the, all the love, are you still in? And we said yes. And that's the meaning of Purim. Purim is the dedication to say yes, even when it's not working out so well. This is reflected in the four mitzvot of Purim. There are four things that we do on Purim to celebrate the holiday. And to illustrate how this is the theme of Purim, it's not they try to kill us, we won, let's eat. But Purim is the dedication even when things are difficult, still sticking to your values, sticking to your guns, even when it's not working out. It's easy to stick to your values, to stick to your, um, your, your, your convictions when it works out. What happens when it doesn't work out? You have your convictions and it's all falling, around, falling apart around you. Do you still stick to your convictions? That's the question. The answer is yes. The answer, the answer to the was yes. What's the, what's, so... What, so how do we celebrate that on Purim? We have four mitzvot. But first, a very quick explanation. What's the difference between when a person does something because they have to or when they do something because they want to? How, how, how is that difference manifest? How do you see the difference? When somebody is doing something that they have to do versus something that they want to do, how, how, how is it expressed differently? In joy's name. Say it again? 
Enjoy Maxie's name. Enjoy. <laughs> Joy, right, exactly. Right, so there is an element of joy, perfect, when you want to do something. So when you have, oh, good, and David's writing a lacquery, good, another Zrizos, you're excited about it, you're enthusiastic about it, you have two people doing the same job. One person's like, because uh, they don't want to do it. The other person's like, excited about it, because they want to do it. So it's the same job. It's like the story that they tell about the two guys walking up the mountain. So father and a son walking down the mountain, and they encounter, as so they walking down the mountain, they encounter person A, person number one, walking up the mountain. He's carrying, oh, he's carrying a, a sack of heavy things, and he's ecking and becking and fetching. And the child says to this guy, what's going on? He says, I am carrying these, uh, a bag of coal on my shoulder. I have to do this every single day. It's terrible. Ugh, it's driving me crazy. My life is horrible. Uh, and he walks by. Passes another guy. Short, shortly thereafter, another guy's walking up with a, with a heavy sack. This guy's running up the mountain laughing and, and, and just smiling. He says, well, what are you, what's going on? What, what are you doing? He says, I just discovered a treasure of diamonds. I'm carrying them up to my house. Yeah, same weight. Same weight. The question is, do you want to do it or you don't want to do it? Right? If you don't want to do it, you're going to be fetching all day. You want to do it, you're going to be running up and, and, and smiling while you do it. Right? Whistle while we work. Something like that. Right? I got that right? Maybe. It's been a while. Point is that, the point is that when we do something because we have to, then we do it in a lackluster way. But when we do something because we want to do it, everything changes. Purim, we have four mitzvot, things that we do every day of the year, but we do it with a little bit more excitement. So let's start. Mitzvah number one. We read the Megillah. We always read scrolls. We read scrolls all the time. We study Torah. Now that we read the book of Esther, but it's different. You read the book of Esther from a, from a parchment, handwritten parchment. That's unusual. I know we read the Torah every week, every Shabbat, but other scrolls like the half Torah we read, you know, from the books of the prophet after the Torah reading every week, that's from a book. It's not from a scroll. On Purim, we wrote a handwritten scroll with parchment. Why do we write a scroll? Because we're excited about the story. We're excited about the holiday. We're excited about Judaism. So we wrote a scroll, and you read it twice. Megillah, the mitzvah is to hear it twice. At night and in the daytime. When do you ever read a Torah book at night? Never. When do you read the Torah at night? Never happens. You always read it during the day. When do you read it at night? When you're excited about it. You can't wait till tomorrow. We've got to read the story now. Are you with me on this? Purim represents being excited about Yiddishkeit. You're so excited. You're writing a scroll on parchment, and you're reading it at night. You can't wait till the next morning. You're reading it the first thing. Purim comes in. Let's read the story. Let's, you, can't, you won't believe what happens, right? Like a BuzzFeed article. Then, then you have the idea of Shalach Manas. Shalach Manas. You give gifts of food to a friend. So every, you know, you always hang out with friends, potluck dinners, you know, you hang out. I mean, like, you know, sans, you know, aside from Corona, right? So you're like, yeah, you're hanging out, you're schmoozing, you're collaborating. But on Purim, you use cellophane. Oh, cellophane, next level. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, cellophane. Purim gift baskets, cellophane, right? You grab it, it's crinkly, there's gift tags on it. You have small bottles of Moscato de Asti. This stuff never happens in the year. You go all out, there's a whole... Um, um, mom, I got you. I got your shalachmanas. We got your shalachmanas before, so thank you. The kids already started to jump into it and, and enjoy it. But it's a time of <laughs> thank you. Um, it's a time of not only sending 
food and whatever, because like normal. You go all out. You go, you go nuts with the, with the, I mean, there's a place called Oh Nuts even. You go crazy with this stuff. It's, it's, uh, you go extraordinarily uh, uh, high, end, high end, but like you get very excited about giving gifts. What about tzedakah? You give the third mitzvah. So mitzvah number one is Megillah twice from a scroll. Mitzvah number two is two gifts of food to at least one person. Um, and was, you, you go out of your way to make it look nice and make it look beautiful. The third mitzvah is giving tzedakah to two individuals in need. So you're going to say, oh, you do that every, every day of the year. Yeah, but on Purim, you look, on the rest of the year, you wait till someone asks you. On Purim, you look for people to give to. You look for people. In other words, you're not just doing the mitzvah when it comes to you. You're excited about the mitzvah, so you go out of your way. You look for people to give tzedakah to. And finally, the meal. You have a festive meal. We always have festive meals, every Shabbos, every holiday. No, Purim is different. Adelayada, baby. Adelayada. Chayev libsumi bapuria adelayada. It's a mitzvah to drink until you don't know the difference between cursed be what was it again and blessed be whom, right? That's how you go. You go big on Purim. It's not just a su'uda. It's not just a meal. It's you go above and beyond the meal to the point that you become a little fuzzy as to what is actually happening. But the point is, and you don't have to literally do that, it could be a spiritual elevation, the point is that we go big on Purim. Why? Because it's the day that we opted in. At Sinai, 3,333 years ago, we were opted in. God almost checked that box for us. God's like, I love you. Here's a diamond ring. Here's a jet plane. Here's a fancy meal. Will you marry me? So who checked that box? God did. On Purim, God's like, you can't find me. Esther means concealment. The word Esther means concealment. Can't find God, not in the Megillah. There's no sign of God in the Megillah. There's no, no, God's name is not written there. A decree of a full year hanging over the heads of the Jews, Jewish people. There's, like God, there's no love. When we checked that box, that was us. When we checked the, I'm in with you, God, or I'm hitching my whatever it is to your wagon, God, that was us. We checked that. That was us. That was consensual. That was us saying yes. And the way that's manifest on Purim, now it worked out well for us. It worked out salvation and miracles and everything. And we have a holiday, thank God. But the way we celebrate that holiday, it's not about survival. It's about owning it. It's about owning Judaism. It's about it being from us with choice and excitement. And so what happens on Purim is that we do the things that we normally do but with much greater excitement. It's the difference between doing a job that you hate versus doing a job that you love. Hate's a strong word. Doing a job that you don't like versus doing a job that you like. Doing the job that you like, you're gonna go all the way. On Purim, we go all the way. Megillah twice from a scroll. Gifts with cellophane. Cellophane is a euphemism for like, for like going all out, right? <laughs> Purim gift baskets. Above, above and beyond. Above and beyond. Tzedakah, I'm looking for people. I'm looking for people to give. Who I like. I remember I was in London. And the meal, L'chaim. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. I remember I was in London for a year in Yeshiva. And in London, they celebrate Purim next level. They have Purim. They have people with means that have, and it's like a tradition. Like if you have a little bit of gelt, you have parties in your house. Anyone and everyone comes through, and there are multiple places like this. Whoever shows up, 
and, and with, with any need, no vetting, no asking, nothing, checks being written the entire night of Purim. Literally, open, open checkbooks. Legitimately. <laughs> They're working Google flights. No, I'm, I'm legit, legit. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. People, it's not one person. It's multiple people. It's in London. It's I'm sure other places also, but I know this firsthand. London. It's like it's become uh, the way they 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 prav yomtiv, The way they they celebrate it is literally many people do this. Open checkbooks. Whoever comes, you get a check, and uh, and that's it. So what's the point? The point is. It's Purim in a few days. Purim begins Wednesday night into Thursday. Don't forget, Wednesday day is the fast of Esther. We go straight from the fast into the celebration with the Megillah. Here's the deal. Purim is the day that you and I celebrate us opting into Judaism. It's not something that's done for us. It's something that we're choosing. We're opting in. Let your Purim this year reflect that. Do something Jewish. Might as well be one of these four or all these four mitzvahs. Do them because you want to do them. Do them in a way that if you would really want to do them, you would do them. If you really wanted it, if you were really excited about the story, you couldn't get enough of it. I always say this. Kids, adults, when they hear a story, you try to tell it to them again. It's like, I, I already know that. I already heard that. Right? You guys are nice to me when I tell the same jokes again and again. You pretend like it's still funny. Or pretend like it's still not funny, which is part of the joke also. But I, I know you guys are nice. I can see it in your eyes. No, I, mean, I know you're nice anyway, but I can see in your eyes that you're being nice when I'm telling the same stuff over and over again. But kids, they love hearing the same story. Yeah? A kid wants you to read the same book every night. They love it. But they know how it goes. They like the story. They like the story. If you like the story, you want to hear it again. Right? It's, it's great. Adults, so once you hear it once, ah, I know it. Oh, I don't need to hear it again. I know how it ends. Kids, it's like, I know it ends. Who cares? The cat in the hat, baby. They got that machine. What's that machine? The, the cleanup thing? Thing one. Well, thing one and thing two, they made the mess, but then you had the machine. The, the guy came in, the cat picked it up. Could use one of those. Anyway, the point is that kids love hearing the story. We should love the story. Hear it twice. Yeah, should love camaraderie, giving to friends and giving gifts to friends. Let's go cellophane or go home. And then we should also give tzedakah, whoever, whenever. Give it on Purim. Don't even think about it. Give, give, because giving is good. And the meal, like I said before, whether literal or figurative, it's all the same. L'chaim. The meal should be besimcha with incredible joy. And so my friends, this Purim, own your Yiddishkeit. It's yours. It's yours. Opt in because of you, not because of anyone else. Make this about you. Sounds so selfish, but in a good way. Make this about you. This is your Judaism. One life to live. Days of our lives. I don't know why we're getting soap operas. All right. That's <laughs> the young and the restless, the excited. Yes. Oh, yeah. Is there anything we're not supposed to do? Is it like we have to do this and this and this? Like no. No, 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 no. It's not, it's not Shabbat or holiday in the sense of a prohibition of work. Um, but, you know, if we're, if we're already celebrating Purim, maybe we could take a little, little time off from, from the 9 to 5 also. Might as well. I mean, how are you going to go and, you know, give all that stuff and do all that stuff with, uh, you know. Online. With, with the life, exactly. It's got to be all in. Purim is all in. So that's it. I mean, look, if you, you know, if, if you, I don't mean use, but I mean, if, if we can't, we can't, you know, if you got to, but there's still time before and after and try to find, try to definitely find time, pockets of time, at least throughout the day in which you can 
just exalt in this thing. But I, I, I know I've repeated this a bunch of times. I know I've ended the class already a few times. But nonetheless, we're going to keep it going just for one more moment. I think it's important to realize that Purim is not about costumes. I mean, there are, there's also that theme. But it's not really about costumes. It's not really about hamatashin. It's not about they try to kill us, let's eat. It's about us historically choosing God even when the chips were down. Even when there was no reason to say yes. We still said yes. So in 2022, let's say yes. Let's say yes because this is who we are. This is what we want. And then we're excited about it. I, I have a suggestion. If, yes. If people have to go to work, wear a costume. Ah. Or not a costume, wear a headband. Or wear a funny hat. There you go. It's, it's you know, I've seen it done in Israel. Nothing says I'm opting into my religion like dressing up in a, uh, in a chicken suit. My kids went to school today in, um, uh, car- not carnival gear, in a, um, what do they call, like when you're in a baseball stadium where they sell the hot dogs, what do they call those? Vendor, vendor not vendor, there's another word for it. My kids went as hot dogs and popcorn and burgers and concessions. Thank you. Concessions. That's the word I was looking for. They went as concession stuff. Why? Who knows? Who knows? I had a kid as a hot, two kids as a hot dog, one kid as a Coke. And well, I'll tell you the truth. Okay. So we had this costume. So this was my dilemma this morning. This was my 7 a.m. dilemma. You ready? I mean, this is just bringing you into my life. 7 a.m., we're looking through the costumes, and we found the burger costume. And um, the burger wasn't a kosher burger. How did I know this? How did I know this? Because there was a piece of cheese that was dripping. And I tell my kid, and one of them, ooh, 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 wow. Wow, that's good. That's good. Ed's got it. Ed's like it could have been an impossible burger. That's true. So I put down the ban. I did it nicely. I wasn't like, you can't wear that. It was like, I'm like, you can't wear that. No, I'm kidding. I said, it's, it's got a cheeseburger. And then my kids like, I'm like, it's just a costume. It's not actual food. I'm like, good point. But I don't know. It just feels uncomfortable for me. It's just like, I don't know. So he didn't end up wearing it. But I didn't think of the impossible or soy cheese. Either way, it could be impossible and soy cheese, in which case it's parav parav. So then there you go. It's not even milk or meat. The whole thing is parav. Huh? Yeah, oh, right, right. We should, we should emblazon on it, impossible, or OU, like this is kosher. Like, don't get any crazy ideas. We would never do that. Right. Um, yeah, so that's the story. Okay. Um, this year, just as far as the, uh, as far as the schedule goes, so Wednesday night, that we are doing here at Chabad in town a sober Purim party from, I believe, 6.15 to 8.15, followed by the Megillah. You can only read the Megillah after nightfall, and they move the clock on us. It would have been 7.11, now it's 8.11. Anti-Semitism? Perhaps? <laughs> Uh, no I'm kidding, <laughs> joking. Um, so eight. So now it's eight in Atlanta. It's eight eleven is nightfall. So you can only read the Megillah after. I mean, when it's Purim pur- begins at night. So it's only when it's night after eight eleven. So we're going to be doing a Megillah reading at eight eleven, preceded by a party. 
Uh, the tricky thing is, it is a fast day, so uh, I don't know exactly how that works. Whatever. I'll be like, oh, hey. Like this. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm not going to pretend to eat. But whatever. So that's, that's going on here, Wednesday night. Thursday, there is a Purim party, I believe. What is it? 5.30? Who's got the times? Something like that? You got, you got the text? You got, you got some information? I should know the 5:30. schedule. 5.30. Okay. Okay, 5.30 Megillah. This is Thursday now. The second time, the second reading. 5.30 Megillah, 6 o'clock party. And the party is a glow party. It's a glow party. We have actually... Well, it doesn't have to be sundown the, next, the second day? It has to be before sundown. Because oh, you, only have, you only have oh, that... Between. It's got to be between the ferns, right? It's got to be during that day, which begins at night, but ends before the next night. So you got to get in before that 8-11 or the next day. Actually, before even like 7.30-ish of that day. Um, so we're doing Megillah at 5.30, followed by the party at 6. The theme is glow, so we'll have glow sticks. Already the lights in Jeff's place have like the blue lights, you know, those um, the dark lights. So everything's going to glow. What is it? Black lights. Black lights, yeah. So everything's going to glow weird. So wear stuff if you want that kind of is glowy. Um, my kids will be glowing the dark hot dogs or something, or burgers, or can't see the cheese because there's black light. Anyway, that's the, <laughs> that's the story. Um, what do you say? There's two what? Costume and white attire and courage. Costumes and white attire. Oh, because the white turns white cool colors. Yeah. 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 Any, any way of zooming that for those of us out of town? Zooming? Oh, it might happen. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Thursday morning, there is a Megillah reading also. Yes. Is it in the email? There is a Megillah. I believe there's a Megillah reading in the morning also. The kids have a thing in school, so I'm going to be up at school. But I think I saw on the website. See, I also find that information on the website. That's why I know what classes are coming up also. See, you guys think I planned this stuff. No, I'm kidding. Um, but there's stuff on the website that says, I think there was something. Purim. Here we go. Oh, 8.30 a.m. Don't quote me on this, but according to our website, uh, again, Wednesday night is 8.15 Megillah, preceded by the party. Um, Thursday is 8.30 a.m. Megillah reading in the morning, and obviously morning, and 5.30 p.m. an evening reading. You don't have to hit all three. You just have to hit one at night and one in the day. And if you can't make these times... Let me know, and I will find you a Megillah reading because they're happening literally across the city in multiple locations, multiple times. I remember when we were kids, or not even kids, when we were, like, whatever, there were some cities and even many places, maybe even Atlanta, on the hour Megillah readings. Like, any, every hour, you could find the Megillah reading somewhere. In Pittsburgh. Oh, in Pittsburgh, it's every hour? Nice. Where? Where do they do it? At the show? Oh, the Judaica store. Yeah. Nothing says... Uh, Let's shop like hearing the Megillah at the, at the Judaica store. That's good. Every hour. That's good. I love Pinskers. All right, good stuff. Um, Tefillin, yes or no? Yes, Tefillin, yes. It's, a, it's like, it's, yes. Yes, Tefillin. It's not a holiday in the sense of no work and no Tefillin. Yes, Tefillin. Um, fast, ideally no. No food, no liquid. But only from sunrise to sunset. It's not a 24-hour like Yom Kippur. It's only from, like, 
that they changed the clocks again. So it's like from uh, when is sunrise? Uh, the, what are the zmanim on this? The zmanim are I, I feel like I did this recently, but I forgot already. Chabad zmanim. Here we go. Halachic times. Give me a sec. Wednesday fast begins six twenty-eight and concludes eight eleven. Yeah, there you go. So it's a little over twelve hours. No food, no drink, but. You can call it intermittent fasting and be all trendy. That's it. Some in- intermittent fasting. That's Ari, it. I yes. have a quick question. Why no Hallel? Why no Hallel? That's a really good question. It's a very good question. Why don't we say Hallel? Hallel is the prayer that we add after the Amidah on holidays, even on Hanukkah, which is rabbinic, like, like Purim, we add Hallel. One of the answers is that the Talmud says, Akati Avdi Achashverosh Anan. We're still slaves to Achashverosh. In other words, even after the celebration, even after the salvation of Purim, we weren't yet sovereign. We were still under the rule of the Persian Empire. As opposed to Hanukkah was about taking back our temple and re- restoring sovereignty. Purim, the salvation, included not having sovereignty. There's, that's still connected to this lesson tonight. And that is that even without sovereignty, we're still opting in. It's not like we're only opting in if we have our own sovereignty, if we have our own jet, if we have our own house. No, we're on a couch, you know, the lights, there's no electricity, Things are not great. We're still in. We're still in it to win it. Anyway. All right, my friends. Lila Tov. Um, tomorrow night, don't forget, you be the judge too. Uh, you be the judge. The adventure continues. Lesson number two. Um, Wednesday is the fast and the holiday, so no classes. No classes Thursday. Um, happy Purim. As I say in Yiddish, Afrelechen Purim. That means happy Purim. All right. See y'all. Tomorrow night is You Be the Judge. This is a great course. It's about uh, um, true crime and comparative U.S. and Jewish law. Tomorrow night's the class. I'll tell you the topic. Tomorrow night is the class on what happens if somebody discovers a hidden treasure on someone else's property. Let's say somebody's doing construction on your house, right? And they're opening up a wall, and behind the cabinet... In the, this is a true story, actually. This is one of the case studies we're going to have. Behind the cabinet, in the kitchen, in the bathroom cabinet, there's like a, a box hanging from wires with $20,000 cash in. The owner had no idea it was there. And you're the, you're, you, you just did the construction where you opened up the wall, you found it. Who gets to keep it? A lot of, a lot of uh, controversy ensues, and that's where we pick it up in the class. So it's a lot of fun, actually. Check it out if you want. Just let me know and I can send you the link. Uh, and fun fact, um, Arizona Jews don't have to worry about daylight saving time because Arizona doesn't have daylight saving time. That's really? right. That's yeah. right. They don't change the clocks. You're right. They opted out of this whole thing. Something in Paradise? Very smart. something in Georgia?